0: Welcome back ladies and gentlemen to another episode of Molecule to Market. I suspect this episode will be aired at some point at the start of 2022. So assuming I'm correct, happy new year to you and your loved ones and colleagues. Wish you all the best for a very healthy, happy and prosperous year ahead for your career and your family and whatever it is that you do. Now back to today's episode. And I We'll be talking about the Pharma and Biotech Supply Chain with David Lightham Senior Vice President and General Manager for Pharmaceuticals at Aspen Technology. So who is my guest today? Well, Dave leads the Pharma Division uh, at Aspen Tech, uh, which defines solutions that best serve the needs of pharma manufacturers to accelerate digitization in their environments. Prior to Aspen, David spent nearly 20 years at Thermo Fisher Scientific. He held multiple leadership roles, including uh, most recently Vice President and General Manager, responsible for a team of more than 500 people. In that role, he drove digital transformation efforts for multiple business units within the company, while also integrating and harmonizing product divisions for improved organization and performance. His previous roles include a role at GSK where he served as vice president for information engineering. He is a super interesting guy. Uh, I'm always fascinated by the software and technology part of the industry. Some of the language I always find a bit overwhelming and a little bit scary, but thankfully Dave was here to talk me through it and hopefully give you guys some insight into kind of how to navigate the world of digital transformation. Some of the things that Dave talked about in today's episode that I think you'll get real value from. He talks very generally about why a transformative approach is now needed to, to deal with new therapeutic areas and new modalities and kind of smaller batch sizes and all that type of thing. Kind of the changing world of life sciences and why uh, you know software will play a role in helping us do our jobs better. He also talks about the pandemic as a real inflection point for companies in our space uh, and the ones that really adapt the technology are going to potentially give themselves a creative advantage and a competitive advantage kind of going forward. I loved how Dave talks about uh, contract service organisations as potentially the lighthouse for others to follow in the sector, so listen out for that, it's uh, really terrific. And there's also something very assured about Dave. He's obviously led huge teams and just has a a very kind of quiet confidence. And I love how he talks about the mistakes he's made and why people should embrace those mistakes, which is something that is very close to my heart, especially given all the mistakes that I make. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please, please, leave a nice review on the app store that you use five stars would be my recommendation and if there are any people in the industry that you think would make good guests on molecule to market then please get in touch for now enjoy today's show we are proudly supported by zymwire which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals in fact thousands of life science bd professionals start their day with sales signals from And because you listen to molecule to market you can have a free go at the platform just go to try that's try hey dave welcome to the show
1: thank you ramon great to be here
0: it's great having you here, and we are uh, a timer recording. We are almost at the festive season. Not to break the uh, illusion of po- the podcasting world for our <laughs> listeners who are probably going to be listening sometime in the new year. So, Dave, just to start off with, it would be great to get your kind of background and you know tell us how you got into the sector and 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 ultimately ended up to the position. You are today. I have done some stalking in advance, so just a warning. I'm probably going to ask a few questions about your time at Thermo and Glaxo as well. But it'd be great just to talk through uh, some of your career history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Um, I've been in the software industry for over 30 years at this point. I um, originally graduated with a degree in aerospace engineering. Um, but in the time that I applied for that major and I graduated, I'm, I'm dating myself here, the uh, space shuttle blew up and the Berlin Wall came down. So uh, to say the aerospace industry <laughs> was in transition was a bit of an understatement. But um, I was able to kind of latch on to a really interesting opportunity with a small company that was interested in my aerospace background for the purposes of developing software models. And these models all, you know, ultimately went to training simulations like Top Gun, Red Flag, where you training military pilots and how to evade rockets, missiles, all, all sorts of things like that. Um, and what I found was, you know, in a practice of, of implementing these models with software and then even kind of getting into more decision-making software, exper- experimenting with early AI, I really caught the software bug, um, you know, a lot more so than, than the aerospace bug I'd had before that. So I ultimately <laughs> went back, got my master's degree in uh, software engineering, um eventually shifted to the private sector and growing up in and around the Philadelphia area, uh, pharmaceuticals was such a big industry in this area. So it was sort of natural that, you know, as I got more into software, it was software aligned around life sciences and, and pharmaceutical companies. I joined a consulting company and quickly found my way to Klein, Beecham. Uh, where I was at for about five years during the transition where it became GlaxoSmithKline and um, started out as the the tech lead for their healthcare services division. Um, which was really way ahead of its time in its usage of, of large data analytics and, and trying to think of the potential applications for it. So, you know, so another great early experience at, at dealing with big data, starting again with some some early AI uh, mining engines, different ways that, that information could be utilized across the spectrum from research to understanding how certain drugs were, were performing in, in real world and getting real world data back on them. But also even you know spotting patterns in in the data itself and determining you know this is symptoms of of someone who's about to have a hospitalization what can we do to intervene and and prevent that hospitalization and save money for everybody involved so um, you know great you know interesting uh way ahead of its time Um, i think i think still looking for something like this to come to market but uh from there I jumped and went to the the vendor side of the house, uh, developing software for pharmaceutical companies and other life sciences companies. Uh, did a number of consultations, uh, worked on a couple tech startups. One of those tech startups uh, was ultimately attractive to Thermo Fisher Scientific. It was then Thermo Electron at the time, and they came and acquired that company. Uh, I was, you know, first in my Thermo Fisher career as the the technical lead for their laboratory informatics business unit, Um, but ultimately, you know, moved around a bit, became general manager of their chromatography software business, and ultimately the general manager of their full uh, laboratory software business, which, you know, really, you know, uh, great practice, lots of super bright people, um, you know, a lot of great strides in, in pushing that industry forward, um, getting more capability off the shelf, faster time to value. Uh, you know, really kind of a transformative time in laboratory informatics. Um, and since that time, I've, I've now joined Aspen Technology and. Leading their pharmaceutical practice as a senior vice president, general manager. So shifting from that kind of laboratory focus more towards the operational production side of pharma, taking you know what's essentially an industry 4.0 powerhouse, um, and AspenTech, and then looking to take it into an industry that's really actively looking to transform. Uh, a lot of the executives that I've been talking to were, were recruited from other industries. So that, you know the pharmaceutical industry is looking to other industries, pulling in exec who had success utilizing technology and similarly they're looking for vendors much like Aspen Tech who know pharma and have been serving pharma for a long time but also have that opportunity to prove technology in some of the other industries that just are traditionally faster to adopt new technology.
0: Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit more about Aspen Technology in terms of you know, obviously you work in the life science division but I understand it to a much bigger organization and that that covers kind of several industries.
1: Yeah. Aspen Tech has just a a great history and reputation. We turned 40 years old this year. So we have 40 years of of, of great innovation, uh, utilizing technology to drive great value for our customers. And we, we measure nearly 60 billion in annual value created for our customers. And that that value is increasingly being measured in different ways, you know, not just profitability and, and the productivity we deliver, um, but also often that's that's being increasingly translated into safety and and even more so into sustainability goals too. So that that same efficiency we can deliver often turns into less waste, which really goes towards those customer sustainability goals. Um, you know, over 2,400 customers worldwide, some of the biggest names, um, you know, in, in a variety of industries. And because of that heritage of innovation and, and driving value, we've also established, you know, a great network of global partnerships. Again, a lot of the big uh, consultation firms um, and, and you know, just industry um Industry firms that you know partner with AspenTech to help deliver all that great value, and we really see sort of the the, the nexus of what AspenTech can deliver is kind of that combination of you know technical excellence and great data capabilities. Um, and, and also marrying that with domain expertise, really understanding the industries and, and how we can deliver value with that technology, and together, you know, industrializing capabilities like AI uh, to give you insights, guidance, even automation um, to industries looking to to transform and, and get to different levels of of optimization of outcomes.
0: That's great. And you mentioned domain expertise there, and I think for many of us, and me included, you know, with tech companies like yourself, you know, we hear Software, big data, AI, automation, yeah. <laughs> all these words that don't necessarily translate to the lay person, me clearly being that person <laughs> in this <laughs> instance. So do, do, I suppose for me, describe, you know, almost a perfect project for you guys or, you know, what is, you know, what is obviously specific to life sciences? What does a, what does a pain point look like that you guys would go in and, and almost the before and after just to kind of give a, almost a tangible, uh, granular look at what that looks like. So I think for many of our listeners, we kind of get that software is going to make our jobs easier and and all that type of thing, but it'd be great to just explain. And if you want to use a case study and kind of use a real life project, you don't have to name the clients or anything like that. That would be, that would be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the ideal engagement is really to kind of start out with with a value mapping exercise with with the customer. Um, you know, AspenTech has just such a, a large portfolio of capability it can deliver. Um, but what we really like to do is start out to really understand the customer their industry needs their their specific pain points and you know a lot of the common ones we're hearing in industry today is around supply chain resiliency right and it's that's you know, as you mentioned we're in the holiday season we're all hoping our, our various uh, holiday shopping is actually going to show up at our doors sometime <laughs> soon but you know this is this has hit every industry and certainly the pharmaceutical industry you know as highlighted through the pandemic has been hitting as hard as anybody so that's a a topic you see continuous improvement continues to be um, you know something all of these industries are looking for operational excellence i mentioned sustainability uh you know so they tend to fall across certain um you know certain trends and the other thing that we can deliver is we can deliver these across you know multiple lines of business you know pharma isn't just you know, a, uh, a provider of, say, active ingredients, there's, there's all sorts of processes, uh, new modalities, everything that go into therapies, the packaging of them. So we can look at, you know, pain points across all those lines of business, across wherever the, the, you know, the focal areas are, whether it's supply chain, whether it's sustainability, whether it's, you know, achieving, you know, more optimal outcomes, and then really kind of zero in on tangible uh, Outcomes such as you know smart sourcing agility, so the ability to be able to change your your value network by predictively understanding when trouble was coming, and then having the, the agility to to kind of change providers, change partners, and and you know keep the the flow of important therapeutics moving. Security of supply, what sort of tactics are are being employed to make sure that supply stays secure and that they can keep delivering to the market faster time to market. Um, you know, that was something that the industry was looking at even before the pandemic and, you know, the performance through the pandemic has only reset expectations. So that's often an outcome that, that- our customers will focus in on uh, reduced environmental impact, and and you know just how you get to further levels of, of self-optimization. Um, you know how you can lean on the information systems uh, to really kind of optimize your your outcomes. And you know the nice thing about doing the value mapping and kind of working through and, and aligning to the greatest pressure points is that you know you, you kind of buy in to getting. To uh, you know, a team of people who are really vested in delivering this outcome. You know, both within the customer and and you know, w- with the team we're delivering to. So they tend to be very high profile, uh, high value missions, so to speak. Um, and we also advocate: don't try to boil the ocean. Don't try to do everything at once. Uh, when you think about Industry 4.0 and digital transformation pick some of these key high value opportunities and execute on them so you can get to time to value faster. But you're doing so with a holistic ven- vendor with, with an Aspen Tech in such a way that everything eventually will plug together. You've, you're still moving towards a holistic digital transformation, but you're taking it in digestible bites aligned along you know your greatest pain points or greatest areas of opportunity.
0: That's great. That's really useful just to get kind of a a more in-depth insight. And I just want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, obviously when you came out of Thermo and, and joined Aspen and kind of switched focus from lab to production. And and to your point there, you mentioned kind of industry 4.0. What, what was your, I suppose, what was your assessment of say this supply chain and the manufacturing side of the life science space from a, um, from an advancement perspective, my perception is you arrived and looked at it and were probably quite surprised by how behind the times it was. Maybe, <laughs> uh, but and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. But we have heard guests before, you know, we're saying that compared to say you know the automotive sector, yeah. you know, you come into the drug production side of space and it kind of feels archaic. So I'm just interested to get your kind of perspective on whether you know, when you started have, kind of lifting lifting the lid to have a look, you were like, oh man, this this needs some serious work.
1: Yeah, it definitely is an industry in need of, of transformation. And I think, um, you know, for a long time, uh, inertia around how um, regulatory guidance was interpreted, you know, created a lot of obstacles within the, the industry, y- the ability to take on new technology, to be the... Uh, you know, the first mover with new technology and the, and the extra um, scrutiny that would often bring from, uh, you know, from auditors. I, I think there was a lot of reasons that over the years have, have peeled away. And then and certainly COVID has lit a flame that this this is a time to transform. And, you know, it's not much unlike where I felt the laboratory industry was when I first started getting involved in that. And of course, the laboratories often set side-by-side, side, uh, if you're talking about product testing, with the production facility. So, you know, you're kind of in, you're in one and the other at the same time. So I always had an eye on this industry. And, you know, as we, we helped transform laboratory practices, this seemed to be, to me, the next place that, that was really going to execute on a transformation. And... And, you know, as I've mentioned a couple of times, COVID has just lit a fire on that. You know, so, so much of the practices and classic operations around producing a therapeutic was a manual process. Um, and during the pandemic, social distancing is is, is death to, um, <laughs> to paper processes. I mean, you can't be near people. It's, it's really hard to kind of, kind of review and get signatures. And, you know, people not even being in the office, you know, a lot of the, the wet signature processes really fell apart. So I, there definitely is an, an appetite and an impetus to change. I think they were already thinking along those lines. Um, when I look at some of the pain points that are coming up around, you know, just increasing demand for accessibility and affordability of the therapeutics, uh, which, you know, creates, you know, demand on on how efficiently you can, can develop them. But now you're also seeing and this is pre-pandemic, you know, increasingly complex and targeted therapeutics coming down the pipeline, which you know, think of it's gonna have to require a transformative approach to how you're gonna develop these therapeutics, because the 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 very old small molecule kind of big bang approach uh, just you know is was challenged by biotherapeutics. But now, you know, with some of these newer modalities like cellular and DNA therapies, it's it's a whole stepwise change in how you're gonna have to think about production. The the other thing, and this this also mirrors the lab world where you saw um, contracts becoming a much bigger part of the equation. So uh, CROs or contract research organizations started to become a much bigger picture of the informatics footprint. And they were often the drivers of newer technology. The risk reward ratio was just a little bit different than say a tier one pharma would be. And I think you're now seeing that and and maybe seeing it in spades with contract manufacturing. So you have, you know, Contract manufacturing organizations taking on full-scale production, but um, also CDMOs who do, you know, full range from helping their tier one sponsors with the, de- you know, the initial development of the therapeutic all the way through to they could do commercial manufacturing. So their their needs really sort of push the edge with with what the state of the art. Is and how quickly you can say adopt a new therapeutic that you're going to create a line around and start producing. So it's it's forced the industry to think less monolithic, more agile, just quicker time to value.
0: And and that was fascinating. That you mentioned obviously contract manufacturing and CDMOs, and many of our listeners are very much in in our space. And and how you know when you when you think about the challenges of a, a, you know, a product uh, coming to market and dealing with, say, um, you know, I've been in facilities where I've been shocked by kind of manual batch records of manufacturing, and I'm kind of shaking my head going, guys, surely there's a better way of doing this. Is that the area where you help, say, a contract manufacturing organization, you know, almost modernize some of those archaic systems? Uh, You know, please correct me if I've I've misunderstood.
1: Yeah, no, you... You, you've been scratching on the surface of all the things we can do, but starting with even, yes, the batch record and that a lot of companies are, are doing this, you know, either manually um, or they've adopted a technology that is just difficult to change. So, you know, say, for instance, talking to a lot of our contract um, customers, you know, they view... A lot of, say, the the manufacturing execution systems that were popular in tier one pharma, frankly, don't work for them because it just takes too long to set up a new production line. So they can't, it, it doesn't fit the model, which they can adopt new lines and, and new products to take them through development and ultimately manufacturing. So some of the innovation we brought to that sector was bringing a far more modular uh, manufacturing educate, uh, execution system with a, with a library of different models that help you adopt and implement new lines much quicker. And also deployment options, a variety of deployment options. So you can you know, quickly project a new deployment option to a facility you know, across the world versus having to go and install and, and do all the classical on-premises work. So you know just in the basics of getting electronic batch record, but we've also, you know, helped with the release process as well around batches. So uh, it, new capabilities were recently launched to, um, you know, reach into. You know, these legacy on premises systems that, you know, those lucky enough to, to be using electronic processes are often stuck with on premises systems that, while they serve their objective, their specific objective very well, often create data silos. And when you go to execute on something like, should we release a batch, you need to go to a number of different silos, pull and extract that information, correlate it manually, and then go through a whole manual review and, and, approval process which takes weeks uh, not only takes weeks to execute on but then often is something that you have to continuously justify uh, you know an order to come in and want to see the process you followed to release that batch and you have to step them through all the paperwork around this manual process so one of our the things our new capabilities can do is you know reach into these on-premises systems, extract the necessary information into a cloud instance where then you can do sophisticated analytics. We have a, a a no-code low-code engine that helps you create the workflows around, you know, doing all the checks and balances as much electronically as possible, should you, re, you know, should you release this batch or not. Um and then also, you know, electronically you know, present this information and gather, you know, the approvals necessary to, to release. So you're taking a process that was measured in days or weeks, and now you can execute it on hours, and you have all the digital evidence. This is this immutable data integrity showing every step and every decision that was made along the line.
0: It's fascinating. I can just imagine many of our listeners kind of shaking their head thinking about the organizations they're working in in some of these yeah. bases. Well, points. you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, and one of the common misconceptions I think is that You know, when people start thinking about cloud capabilities and doing something like a batch release via the cloud, they're thinking, oh, we can't do that until we get all of our capabilities into the cloud. And that's that's not necessarily the case. I mean, a lot of these on-premises systems do, you know, what they're supposed to do, do it quite well. They're they're installed, they're validated, they've been configured, in some cases, customized. You don't necessarily have to ditch that system to get to higher level value of extracting that data, curating in a data lake, and then automating some of these processes around it and even getting further data insights around them.
0: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. We are proudly supported by ZymeWire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from ZymeWire. Because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. One thing I want to rewind back to actually... When you went you were talking about obviously your your background, even uh, pre Aspen was you know nearly two decades at Thermo, and Thermo obviously changed hugely during that time. So I was curious to ask you know how how was that journey as that company continued to acquire and become you know as big as some of the big pharma companies in the world today. But what was it like on that journey and on that ride? You know obviously you had some uh, you know various roles and you kind of ended up being a a very senior person within that organization. But it'd be great to paint a picture of what that that journey was like. And, you know, when you were acquired 20 years ago or whatever it was, did you you envisage that that was going to
1: happen? I can certainly say at that point, no. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was working for a small agile software company and, and you know, especially at the time, Thermo Electron, uh, as they were known at the time, was, was essentially an equipment focused, in um, some ways almost like a holding company of, of different companies. So a much different culture and a much different type of business. Now, you know, what I saw over the years was a complete evolution. Um, you know, from being that sort of holding company to being, you know, more of an integrated uh, company across several divisions, obviously adding lots of capability over the time and and you know for me as a professional the exciting part was because it was changing so much it seemed like just about every 3 years on the dime I was being asked to parachute into some other situation and <laughs> and help improve and help bring a team along and and so yeah you know, there was a you know a great area of professional development but you know at the end of the day I, you know all the respect in the world for Thermo Fisher and what they've done and what they put together, but I myself am a software professional, and I felt like I'd done everything I was going to do <laughs> as a software professional in a, in, in a large, you know, hardware consumable and, and services business. Um, so, you know, having this opportunity at AspenTech, where I get to kind of continue this focus on delivering to pharma, but do it in you know a true digital to their DNA company, um, with this great history of innovation and and you know leading the charge, you know, to, to expand their business in pharmaceuticals and life science has just it's just been a, a great opportunity.
0: Well you've just answered my next question, which is why did you go to Aspen? But you've <laughs> you've just given a very <laughs> articulate answer. So well done for kinda of guessing guessing ahead. And can you give our listener a, a feel for like what your team looks like in terms of you know, how many people are within your division, within the, the life science division?
1: Yeah. So, you know, first recruited in to, to really start uh, and, and create the activation energy around this, this push back uh, in a bigger way into pharma and life sciences, uh, started out with you know, rather rather small business unit, uh, just a handful of us, uh, many coming from the acquisition of Camo Analytics, which is you know one of the top multivariate analytics companies in the world, um, we've added that to other capabilities we've had. So we've you know great multivariate analytics capabilities within our group, but we've also just been looking across the whole lifecycle of, of you know classic pharma and, and biotech and all the places that Aspitech can add value. Uh, so you know, begun hiring around having a greater commercial footprint, being able to deliver these capabilities, bringing in a lot of pharma-fluent people uh, to expand to those that we you know already had in-house, uh, just getting ready to win on a much bigger scale. So we've, you know, from those early days when we formed the business unit back in uh, it was April 1st of 2021, we're already upwards of a uh, 150 people specifically brought into the pharma business um, that spans across just, you know, Product domain experts to services folks to a big infusion of, of R and D to help make sure that specific requirements to pharmaceuticals worked away into a variety of different products across Aspen Tech. Uh, it's it's, um, it's pretty impressive. I mean, you hear about the the great resignation and, and companies struggling to hold on to headcount we've been the opposite story we've been expanding rapidly and I'm really really impressed with the talent we've been able to bring in and and just a diversity of talent uh, from across a spectrum uh, of pharmaceutical some with direct you know like myself from pharmaceutical experience others from you know key vendors to the industry uh, it, it is a great group of people with a whole bunch of different exp- you know uh, different experiences delivering to pharma so I I really appreciate the diversity and I always think that that leads to the greatest innovation.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That's great to you know, congratulations on the, the you know cr- incredible growth in sh- such a short space of time. And in, presumably, the pandemic has driven Aspen's interest in life sciences. Probably, you know, by seeing a lot of the issues and challenges, and recognizing, hey, we could probably <laughs> we could use our skills to to really help and you know obviously add, add more business add more revenue but actually solve problems that will ultimately benefit patients and you know it, it- Correct me again if I'm wrong, but that that would be my objective uh, observation, if you like, of why why a company like Aspen would invest in life sciences.
1: Actually, it started well before the pandemic. Um, you can go back and look at some of the early moves. You know, going a couple of years back, where Aspen started to, you know, add board members with specifically with backgrounds in, in the pharmaceutical industry, and starting to put together the business plan to execute on. in some ways, I was the, the tip of the spear of that plan coming in as the general. Manager, but this has been something that's been building, and there's a lot of analysis done on the industry, you know, determining you know the relevance of some of the new capabilities that AspenTech has added over the last couple of years, um, you know, capabilities around predictive maintenance, uh, around our, our AIoT capabilities, it, and the case just kept building that these were all things that that pharma needed and would welcome. Um, so it, it actually preceded the pandemic by by several years now. I, I think ultimately, you know, the, as I mentioned a couple of times, the pandemic will serve to be, you know, especially as we look back on it, you know, real inflection point for the industry and and where they look to invest and where they know they need to kind of up their game. And I, I think it the timing was perfect for Aspen Tech to kind of refocus on this industry.
0: That's interesting. And the inflection point piece you said there, I find fascinating. And I look at it through the lens of contract service providers, uh, you know, across the, um, across the supply chain. And, you know, my view is that as the, as the industry gets more, it's more attractive, it's more investable. Um, you're going to get a situation where those companies that invest in technology and become more efficient and can, deliver you know, quicker for clients and make more money and you know, do it in a pain free, those companies, I believe, will be the kind of you know, the strongest that will succeed. Do you, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious, do you share that same view that, you know, if everyone keeps doing what they've done, then there's going to be some front leaders that really kind of, uh, you know, embrace technology and, you know, move forward. But presumably that's a real competitive advantage for some companies and versus the ones that decide, you know what, this whole technology thing, <laughs> is not for me or we'll have some siloed stuff it, it i suppose my question is around the competitive advantage that you yeah. see um but I, yeah be curious if, if you're seeing some of that where i mean there's one i won't name the company but there's one cdmo that i'm aware of that is hugely invested in kind of almost pitching themselves as we are you know uh the, the kind of the tech savvy CDMO, you know, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, so it is their competitive edge. But it'd be be curious to see if you're seeing more of that type of uh, type of activity.
1: Yes, Um, and and I, you know, I think I hinted at this before, but I can, you know, certainly elaborate more. I definitely see the contract organizations really driving the acceleration of change. Um, And the reason for it kind of goes back to, and I mentioned the same thing happened in the the laboratory space too. I mean, typically think of like a a tier one pharma and, you know, the whole um, life cycle of of a a drug or a therapeutic. And, you know, that the, the manufacturing part historically was looked at almost as like a necessary evil. You know, once you had your processes you know, approved and, and, and locked down and validated, there was little reason to go back and, and alter or change. them. I mean, you you never wanted that factory to go offline. You wanted to milk every minute you had that, that therapeutic under patent. Um, so I think some of the risk reward for achieving incremental productivity improvements just wasn't there for tier one pharma. But when you look at a contract organization, and especially as you know, more and more therapeutics are coming down, more smaller batches, more boutique batches. It's it, changing the, that whole dynamic. That that contract organization in most cases isn't going to share in those those massive returns from having the product under patent. They need to make their money by executing as a great manufacturer. So anything they can do to improve their productivity, one, goes straight to their bottom line, but two, is a significant competitive advantage over their competition. So their risk reward for adopting technology that improves the way that they can efficiently develop a new therapeutic or new medicine um, is drastically different than, you know, a major tier one pharma. However, even though that risk reward is different and they're so they're more on the the edge to try new technology to try things that that could make a difference for them you know tier one pharma isn't against getting these these improvements so if it's proven at a cdmo or proven a cmo they'll adopt it the next time they're bringing one of their lines in-house and um, looking to set up a new production line so i think the contract organizations are, are, in a lot of ways, become the lighthouse for evaluating, trying new meaningful technology that makes a difference in how you produce the drugs, and then ultimately serve as the the reference point for the rest of the industry to kind of also enjoy that advantage that that they serve to be the the lighthouse for.
0: Mm, I love that phrase, the lighthouse, and uh, but uh, it's a real. You know at a time where i think the spotlight has really been on the contract service sector and the outsourcing space that we operate i think it's great that lighthouse terminology to inspire companies in our space to you know to you know utilize technology and drive it forward and actually lead the way rather than follow from, you know, tier, tier one farmer. And yeah, I, well, to do, I, I don't tell. want to
1: put down tier one farmer either, because no. I mean, a <laughs> lot of them, the more progressive ones are actually literally calling, <laughs> calling out some of the uh, organizations to be the lighthouse within their organization and to be the, you know, production ph- uh, facility that, that is that, you know, blueprint of what they want their other facilities to look like. So you you see them sort of taking a page from some of these contract organizations and saying, all right, we're not going to adopt this all the way across our infrastructure, but you know, we'll we'll pick a production facility to be our lighthouse and to be the one that's got a little more avant-garde and trying new things out. And if they're successful and prove the value points, you know, it eventually rolls out to some of the other facilities as well.
0: No, I I agree. And it's interesting, you know, we've had a few guests on um, recently Dave that have been in that Kind of uh, external outsourcing uh, phase, and you know, it's it's really fascinating to hear that they're not only utilizing vendors to obviously deliver a service, but they are learning from them as well, which I thought was quite an insight, interesting insight. To your point that if they see something working well, you know, if if they're using thirty CMOs across the world, it's something that they can potentially look to bring in house and actually use across all of their relationships, which will you know, obviously the the cumulative effect. Of that for a, for a tier one pharmaceutical company is huge and um and I wanted to ask a little bit about leadership. You said something earlier on which I would written down as you know help the team and lead the team. I'm not sure if it was with respect to something, but I'm just conscious of the fact that you have obviously you, you lead a sizable team today. But as your general manager role at Thermo, I suspect you have quite a lot of people underneath you as well. So I'm you know I'm interested to know some of the leadership lessons that you have learned uh, along the way. I'm, I'm sure there, there are many. Um, so other, I suppose, is there anything that you used to believe from a leadership perspective that you now don't believe or, or that has changed? Because um, I always, I suppose, you know, people like yourself, Dave, you've got you know, a phenomenal career and, and people will look at you and think, this guy's got it all figured out and he hasn't made any mistakes. And I'm trying to dispel that that actually all leaders make mistakes and, and they learn from them. And so I'm I'm curious to know whether there are things that you used to believe particularly around leadership, but if there's anything else related that
1: Well you actually just hit on one of them. And I, I think it's something I've learned over the years is is to be very open with your failures, right? You know, and <laughs> and and share instances where, you know, you made the wrong call before and, you know, but you pivoted and you kind of found your way. And I think I think that vulnerability is really important. And I also think it it opens up you know the organization and like it's okay we it's okay to make mistakes but it's you want to you want to learn from them right and, and so by sharing is those times where i've made a mistake and you know hopefully learn from it um i, I think it just it, it helps set the right dynamic with the team that that you know people aren't perfect we endeavor to do the best we can um and you have to embrace Times where you know he made the wrong call as is, is, is a learning opportunity, and what could you have done differently, and and, and take that on to the next opportunity.
0: No, I, I couldn't agree more, and you know, it's quite fascinating in my own, I suppose, career. I you know I write a lot of content, blogs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and the most successful blogs I've ever had. on um, here are all the mistakes that I've made, and they, <laughs> um, there, was what, there was one. There was one I wrote a few years ago, which it was it it was something about the fact that I transferred a hundred thousand pounds to the wrong bank account <laughs> and, oh, <my. laughs> so, and it, it was the most uh viewed piece of content i have ever written in you know i suspect i will never write and it just got shared and shared and people loved it because of its authenticity because of the lessons and all that kind of stuff and i think i think there's a lot to be said for leaders like yourself that can recognize that being open to failure and embracing wrong calls actually embraces your team to do better and recognize that they Will also, uh, you know, if they embrace their own mistakes, they're probably likely to to grow into better leaders. So no, that's a great a great learning. And if you if you could go back, uh, Dave, and give your twenty five year old self some advice. What what would you say to him?
1: That's a interesting one. Uh, you know, I think it would be, you know, never never expect things to go quite so literally. Don't. Um, you know, embrace every success but you know to treat every failure every setback as just a learning opportunity and not you know not not get so wound up over you know each and every um you know instance of one of those and and if you if you adopt that soon enough uh, you know you just take a different perspective on what you're doing every day and how you're interacting with the people around you and i, I think it just helps kind of Accelerate getting to that that better place as you know a human being as a leader as a you know a coworker as someone who people rely on um, that that you know it, it is okay to make those mistakes and and you know just embrace and learn from them because I think you know to your point especially early in my career. You know, you felt like you had to seem invulnerable. You had to seem perfect. You had to seem, <laughs> and its just—and sometimes perfection can be, you know, the the, the, the antithesis of, of progress, right? You, yeah, you yeah. don't you don't progress. You don't learn. You don't you don't make incremental improvements because you're you're too busy trying to keep up this facade of perfection. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think that's it's a great point, and yeah, you know, I think, being personally, I certainly resonate with that. You know, especially in my twenties, where you're kind of you don't you don't want to be seen to being anything but, but, but perfect yeah. and every and every mistake you make i mean you know, you look back and you you want the world to swallow you up at times and yeah. that, that's yeah. the great, you know, biggest mistake ever and then you know you look back now and think um you know it it wasn't it was nowhere near as bad as you thought it was so, yeah. yeah but unfortunately you don't have the uh the years of wisdom at that point in your life to be able to appreciate but that's great advice for certainly any of our uh, younger listeners. And if, you know, how would your best friend describe you in, in three words?
1: They would describe me as extremely team oriented. Very good.
0: I honestly thought you were going to say extremely talented, there,
1: and I was going to. But <laughs> no, clear, fact, clearly, clearly you that's, are. But just... that's the, <laughs> the lesson. The lesson you learn, right, is it's not really about your talent, yeah, especially yeah. as you get with the leading large, large organizations. It's about the team. It's all about yeah, the team. You I know, what a, a strong performing team will outperform high flying individual contributors every day. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: could not agree. Yeah. Could not agree more with that.
1: You know, one of of the interesting anecdote. Uh, One of the and I, you know, it came from a whole sports background. So I always believed in team. But where it really kind of, um, kind of clued in in the business realm for me is the very first conference I ever went to as a software professional was around data warehousing. And if remember, data warehousing, much like artificial intelligence in its early days, a lot of high profile failured projects also. So there was, they did quite a survey, an extensive survey on what made successful data warehousing projects versus which ones that failed. And there was one overriding data point for successful data warehousing projects and they thought it was a mistake. So they went back and conducted all these exit interviews and really kind of convinced themselves that there was something behind this. The data point was the projects that were successful, the team members socialized outside of work. And they, they couldn't understand. They figured it had to be executive buy-in, funding, good requirements, you know, all sorts of things that, that you know, apple pie. You would think would lead to a, a good project, but what they found is if you're get to that point where, you know, the bonds between that team, that love within that team is so strong that you're gonna interact outside of work, whether you had to or not, that those bonds also will dig in when projects get difficult, when things aren't so well defined, and they will find a way to succeed. They won't let each other fail. And, you know, that often is the more important trait than having everything served up for you because eventually something's going to go wrong eventually you're, you're going to hit some sort of adversity and those were the teams that got through whatever bump or adversity happened on their particular projects and they were ultimately successful so that again just kind of reinforced to me just how important it is to create the right team dynamic and and make sure everyone's buying in
0: it's a, it's a absolutely spot on that dave and I, I i think certainly many of us agree and i i certainly do and lesson there for all of our listeners you know take your team out for drinks take them out for beers (laughs) i think it's the number one thing missing from the pandemic (laughs) it's not
1: so much the conference room chit chatter it's it's the all the ancillary stuff the water cooler chats the you know heading out for a beer just having a nice dinner together yeah
0: Yeah. it's the social aspect you know it's funny i mean getting to conferences this year you kind of realize that the old kind of exhibition booth stand type thing is probably not yeah that's probably Given everyone a bit of an insight into that's probably not the best way to do business, but the social aspect has really thrived, you know, albeit safely. And and that brings us nicely on to my final question or point, because normally I ask guests about trends and changes and predictions, but I think the nature of what you've talked about today, Dave, is probably given our listener huge insight in things that they can take back in their own business or maybe suggest, you know, certainly in 2022 and beyond. So thank you very much for that. But if if any of our uh, you know listeners want to get in touch with you or connect with you are you out and about so you've got uh, you know presumably they'll find you on linkedin and that type of thing we can put show we can add that to the show notes but uh, i'm sure some of our um listeners would probably you know want to want to ask more questions so what's what's the plan for what's the best way for people to to get in touch
1: oh i would say just just reach out to me um you know it's uh, you know whether it's you know via email or, or connect with me via LinkedIn. Uh, certainly, love to hear from people in the industry. Um, I, you know, I mentioned how much I enjoy the diversity of my group and all the different viewpoints. That much and that much more goes for uh, you know people actually in the industry doing a lot of this work i i can't get enough interaction input and and feedback from from people doing this so i really do welcome the interaction and you know hope it's uh hope it's meaningful both ways
0: no no i'm sure it will be well thank you dave for being a guest on molecule to market appreciate your time very much Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you'd like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, MoleculeToMarketPod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads
1: in life sciences.